You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. argue afterwards, bro. So this week, though, I'll quit wasting our time. This week we're in Acts 9, uh, verses 19 through 31. So let me uh, locate the text in my Bible real quick, and then uh, we'll, I'll read through it, and I'm going to pray, and then... Uh, And then we'll begin our study through. So Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 19. Here's the word of God for us. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him. And how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. This is the word of God for the people of God this morning. Amen. Hey, would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the privilege and the blessing that we have to gather here on a Sunday morning publicly to hear the gospel, to hear your word proclaimed over us. God, I pray that our hearts would be open to hear from you. Lord, I pray that you would come and speak to us about what it means, what it means to be growing, not only as disciples, but as ministers of the gospel. Father, I pray that you would give us ears to hear, I pray that you would give us eyes to see, I pray that you would give us hearts that would desire to hear from you. I pray, Father, that your spirit would powerfully break through any kinds of barriers that would seek to stop us from hearing from you, and not only hearing from you, but then also being given the strength to obey you. Father, I pray that you would do that, and then I pray that you would reveal more of Jesus to us and his plan uh, for your bride, the church. Trust you to do this work. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. (laughs) So the passage that uh, that I just read um, basically outlines the early years of the making of the Apostle Paul into a minister of the gospel. Now, if you know me well, um, you would know that when I use a phrase that says, the making of the Apostle Paul, I am reminded of my love for good mob movies 
where good mobsters are made men, right? So there is a process, a long process that goes into the making of a minister. In our previous text, uh, in, in verses 1 through 19 of, uh, of chapter 9, what we saw was we saw how God took a bloodthirsty terrorist named Saul, and he began turning him into what I call a blood-bought evangelist, right? The phrase just goes together really well, captures the essence of what God is doing in Saul's life. God did this work in Saul when uh, Saul encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus, right? And in that encounter, Jesus, this sovereign Savior of sinners, and we talked about this last week, shows up and he, and he basically confronts Saul and then radically saves him. So you've got to remember, right, the setting for last week of what was taking place. Saul was hell-bent on his, waging his, what I would call a self-righteous holy war against Christians, Jesus shows up, knocks him off his high horse right in the middle of the road, confronts him for his war against God, and then he radically saves him. And and the text tells us in verse 15 that when God saved him, he saved him uh, to be a, a chosen instrument of God. A chosen instrument of God to carry God's name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. Uh, This was God's purpose in Saul's life, was to make him a chosen instrument of mine. The the possessive term, mine, you're mine now, um, was something I know really affected me as I studied through and as we preached through last week. uh, To know that we would at some point be bought and paid for by the king of the universe who gave his perfect son on our behalf so that we as his enemies could then become his sons and daughters. And to have that proclaimed over us, you're mine, you're my son, you're my daughter, and to know that there is nothing in all of eternity that could change that proclamation over us, uh, there's great comfort in knowing that. And I I imagine that that Saul uh, took great comfort in that throughout the years too. This is the same Saul who, again, we later begin calling the Apostle Paul who wrote Romans chapter 8. To me, is the most beautiful text of all of Scripture. Um, and it's a reminder. We belong to God. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I think Saul, Apostle Paul, experienced that, the depths of his soul. One of the things that I said last week is that the story of Saul's conversion is is uh, really two things. It's both shocking and it's encouraging, right? Um, I say that it's shocking because we don't naturally think about going out and recruiting our worst enemies um, and then converting them into beloved family members. We don't typically think in that realm. Um, So it's shocking because of that. But it's also encouraging, and, and what, like what I said last week, and I've already been alluding to here, it's super encouraging to read the story of, of Saul and, and his conversion, because as you read it, as you study, as you think your way through it, at least I am confronted with and encouraged by this truth that nobody is ever too far gone. Nobody is ever too far gone for God to save. And not only for God to save, but for God to use to advance his kingdom to the ends of the earth. So it's both shocking on the one hand and deeply, deeply encouraging on the other. 
when God saves sinners, focus on this for a minute. When God saves sinners, he doesn't save them so that they can get comfortable sitting in church gatherings. I know we're all here and we're in comfortable chairs and there's air conditioning. Cooler for you guys out there than it is for me up here with these stupid lights that are bright. And we're in a comfortable space though, right? That, that God, God doesn't save us so that we can get comfortable in these gatherings. These are a blessing to us for sure. God saves sinners so that he can transform us into ministers of the gospel. Um, and he transforms us into ministers of the gospel so that we might then advance God's kingdom to the ends of the earth. And you do that through the proclamation of the gospel, right? Um, those are the basics. When God saves sinners, um, I, I like to say it, they usually go through a process. There's a process of, of first becoming like a patient in a hospital. Um, there's, the, the next step is like becoming a member of a family. And then the next step is you become a soldier in an army. Now, I got to say, sometimes what happens is some of us kind of get stunted in our growth. Again, great illustration of a grandbaby in the NICU today. And you think about the work that must go in for that baby to grow and become viable, right? Or not viable is probably not the right word, but um, I don't know. Viable is the only word I can think of. I think you guys get the healthy, um, able to be sustained on her own, you could say. You know, there's years of this growth process that's going to take place for her. And for, for believers, it's the same way. But the problem sometimes is, is that as believers, sometimes we get stuck in the hospital and we just stay there. Or we get stuck in the, oh, I just love the fact that I'm part of a church family, and we just stay there, right? We, we don't really become the soldier in the infantry, so to speak. And so those parts of the process are super important. So think about those three portions, and you might be wondering, what does this have to do with the text? I'm building something to get to the text so that you guys know. Um, we think about a new believer as a patient in the hospital. What's going on there? In that moment... A new believer as a patient is, is like in the hospital of the Holy Spirit, right? And you have the master surgeon or the great surgeon, um, God the Father. He, he steps in and he, he does surgery, so to speak, right? He's got a scalpel and everything, basically. And he pulls out this old, dead heart. It's black. It's been infected with sin and it's, it's in prison. In fact, it's dead. It's not even beating, right? He pulls out that heart and he transplants, puts in a brand new beating heart of flesh that is now free to love God, where previously that old dead heart was bent on sin, not free to love. This is what happens in the, in the early stages of the salvation process, you could say. Um, and in those moments, somebody is free to serve God. They're saved, right? They're now a believer. There's a lot of other things that probably happen in the, uh, in the hospital stage of uh, being a believer. But at some point, you've got to get out of the hospital. You have the hospital, you get taken home, so to speak, right? And you become part of the family. Uh, you're now, in, in these moments, you, you're blood-bought. You're adopted. You've been rescued out of the, uh, the orphanage. I think we talked about that last week, too. You're adopted. You're brought into the family. Nothing can change that. You have this Father in heaven who loves you. You're able to draw near to him. And in those moments, as you become part of the family, and you get, you get nutrients, to, so to speak. You get relational support. You get community. All those things. 
Now you're part of the family. And then what happens there is you need to immediately then get enlisted into the army of God. You know, kids in kids' church sing a song about that, right? What's the song called? Is it the army of God? How does it go? Somebody's got to... Miss Eileen, you got it, right? She's drawing a blank. Come on, people. Nice, nice. The only, here's the only problem I have that now we teach our kids this from an early age, right? If you've got kids in church and so on and so forth. I only have one theological problem with that song, and somebody say, of course you do, Joe. <laughs> it's not heresy. I'm not saying that, okay? I'm just saying when, when it says things like, I may never, <laughs> the reality is we should be saying, I will. If I'm in the Lord's army, I will be doing those things in a spiritual sense. That's the only problem I have with the song. But in that song, we learn that we are to be in the army of God, right? We have an enlisted place. Now, can you imagine being in a war zone and you're trusting that your, your brother or your sister is to be right next to you on that line and the, the, the enemy is coming at you in your face and suddenly you look over and, well, where's he at? He stayed home today. That, that's a tough day, isn't it, right? So again, that, that's the transition that I think we see in Scripture. There, I think there's lots of passages we could go to um, to look at these things. But at the end of the day, um, our, our full maturity here this side of heaven, in some regard, is to see ourselves as soldiers in an army, right? Uh, uh, um, an entire battalion, so to speak, of ministers who are called to advance the gospel to the ends of the earth. In fulfillment of Matthew 28, the Great Commission, and Acts 1.8, that is our calling. Now, back to the storyline. Apostle Paul, Saul at this moment, right? And by the way, the two names were always there. It wasn't like one time he was Saul and another time, oh, hey, we're going to call you Paul now. He really was Paul and Saul all the time. There was part of his genealogy where they were like, hey, we're going to call you Paul when you're here. We're going to call you Saul when, when you're over here. Names are somewhat synonymous in some regard, but have some different meanings too. So without getting into a whole bunch of stuff there, if you go back to Saul slash the Apostle Paul and you wonder why, why does he refer to him as both? That's the reason why. Number one. Number two, if you put yourself in the Apostle Paul's shoes in these moments, right? He's just been converted, right? Um, He's just gotten prayed for. The scales have fallen off his eyes. He once was blind. Now he can see. I'm pretty sure that Paul did not immediately think of his conversion in the terms that we're talking about. Uh, the hospital, the family, and the infantry. Although in Paul's writings later on, I think you would find those themes very dominant. Most new believers don't think of being a Christian in these terms, Right? There might be some of you here today who even struggle with this idea um, that when you became a believer, you're also called to be a minister. It might sound a little bit shocking to hear that kind of language or to be kind of pressed, challenged that way. Um, to, to know that, that when God saves you, He doesn't just call you to Himself as a brand new son or daughter in the family, but He also calls you to enlist in His army as a minister. Uh, when, when we think about ministers, I think especially in, in the Western world and in the Western church, what we think about is we think about those guys who get paid, right? 
guy like me, maybe. We think about the guys that get paid to go preach or make hospital visits or pray for the sick or do counseling for marriages or a whole other list of, like, quote-unquote, what I would call ministerial responsibilities. Um, and I think it shocks people sometimes to hear that actually, biblically speaking, every believer is called to those things in some sense, right? All of us are called to be ministers in the army of God. Of those who are actually blessed to receive a paycheck, uh, if you were to look at Ephesians 4, which is what Paul later writes, um, those who actually draw a paycheck to do ministry are actually doing that so that they might equip the saints, Paul says, equip, equip the saints, believers, for the work of ministry. So you have to ask the question, what is the work of ministry then? Well, it's a lot of things that, that I just mentioned. And then some, right? Ministry can extend all the way from showing up midweek to help clean toilets in the back and vacuum the floors, because we don't pay people to do that, um, to mowing the yards outside, to you know, manning the nursery downstairs, or more people in kids' ministry. I'm sure our kids' leaders would be like, hallelujah, praise God, if some other people showed up on a Sunday and said, hey, I'll, I'll tow the line with you on kids' ministry, right? Kids' ministry is one of the hardest places to, to staff in churches. Um, to, do, to doing stuff like music ministry. Um, I mean, the list goes on and on in terms of where your place is. And, and the reality is there's always a vacant seat somewhere that somebody could jump into, right? Um, I just think that we don't often think of that. And Paul says this in Ephesians 4, that our job is to equip the saints. Like my job and other guys who get paid to do this, we're to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Why? Well, he says for the building up of the body of Christ. So all of us has a part to play in that. Make sense? One of the illustrations that I have often used is my wife and I have seven children. And one of the things that we tried to do hard, and we didn't always do a great job of it, we tried to give them each chores around the house. And we tried to teach them that, hey, we're all part of the same military unit here, and, and our house is like a battleship, right? And, uh, and so, yeah, it works sometimes. Usually the kids just rolled their eyes at us, okay? Um, not so unsimilar to what some church members do sometimes. Like, okay, Joe, get off. Anyways. We would do that, and we would split things up, and we'd say, okay, this is your post. Don't leave your post. Get those stinking dishes done. One time, I think I fired one of the kids because they were doing really badly at it. And made them, I made them write their own job description and then refused to pay them. Anyways, every church member, my point, every church member is called to be a minister who does the work of ministry, building up the body of Christ. Now, again, I doubt that many of you walked in here this morning, okay, um, I mean, I, I could be wrong. Some of you may have, but I, I doubt that, that many of you walked in here wondering what process you would go through to become a minister of the gospel, right? Most of us wake up on a Sunday morning and we're like, hey, Lord, can you just help me get to church without tearing my kids' heads off or um, like help my wife and I show up and make it look like we actually love each other or would you help us show up and just look like we have our stuff together, you know, like everything's kind of okay with us. That, that's usually, or show up on time, you know. Um, th those are things that I think are usually dominating our thoughts on Sunday mornings, uh, showing up maybe hoping to get rejuvenated from a long week, and those aren't bad, right? None of those things are bad. That's just usually what dominates the landscape for us. But I think the challenge for us this morning, again, you didn't show up probably thinking that way. The challenge for us is to look at what, happens with the Apostle Paul, how he was made into a minister of the gospel, and then start asking, how does that apply to us, right? 
the questions for us to be this, like what, what if every church member, so think about it, if every church member throughout the world began to ask that question, how do I become a minister of the gospel? Right? How do I enlist in God's army? What do I need to do to be made into a minister? You start asking those questions and then look at this text and start answering the questions from the text <coughs> and see how God might challenge you to grow, right? So if you're looking at the text, the first thing that I notice um, when you're asking that question, hey, how do we make ministers? How do we make church members into ministers? First, uh, I think you're made in community, first of all. That's one of the first places. You're made in community. Uh, Lone Ranger Christians, okay? Um, those, and my son-in-law, Logan, um, would be Aubrey, our oldest husband. He has a t-shirt, graphic design company. He actually has a t-shirt with an image of the Lone Ranger on the front, which I need to get because the Lone Ranger was like my hero when I was a kid. But it, it simply says, you know, basically there's no such thing as Lone Ranger Christianity. Um, it, it's, it's a facade, those who would say that they have no need to be part of the church or those who would refuse to commit to a church family, what's happening is they're simply not following the biblical pattern that you observe throughout scriptures. It's not biblical. Uh, when, when you follow the Apostle Paul, Saul, when you follow the Apostle Paul's development as a believer and as a minister of the gospel, what you would find is you'll find that he is constantly immersing himself in the church community over and over and over again. You can't get away from it. And you can't also approach that thinking, well, you know, Saul was a special case. Um, you have to approach that like, man, this, this guy practiced what he preached. That's, that's the way you have to look at it. If you look at verse 19 in our text, what, is it, what does it start out with? It says, for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. It doesn't say he went and hid in the basement. It doesn't say that he went and found his, his favorite vacation resort spot. It says that for some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. If you look further down in verse 25, you'll see that the disciples in his community were the ones who rescued him from those who sought to kill him, right? That couldn't happen if he wasn't living in community with other believers. Uh, you'd also see in verse 26, if you look down there, that when he arrived in Jerusalem, he attempted to join the church community, right? That's what he attempted. It was the first thing he tried to do when he arrived in Jerusalem. He didn't go try to find a job. He didn't try to find Starbucks. He didn't try to find a big fat steak. He went and tried to find the disciples. I'm not saying he didn't drink coffee if it was available. I'm not saying those things aren't important. They are. Steak is important. Um, but one of his priorities was to find the church family and was to get involved with them and to build relationships with them. He attempted to join that church community. All throughout Paul's ministry, he surrounded himself in community with other disciples who were on the same mission to advance the name of Jesus to the ends of the earth. That's what Paul was looking for. Now, I personally think, I personally think, and I'm sure you probably would agree with me, living in community with other humans can be a huge blessing. Agreed? Most of us would agree, right? It can be a huge blessing, but it can also be very difficult, right? Uh, living in community, which, how do you define that? Let's define it this way. We would say living in community, in church community, biblical community, um, there's lots of ways you could define it. Let's define it this way. This is basically regularly participating in the large and small group gatherings of the church. That's the way we kind of try to define it here. Regularly participating in the large and small group gatherings of the church. This can be a huge blessing to you. Why? 
Well, it can be a huge blessing to you because you gain friendships, uh, you get support, you get coaching, you get mentoring, uh, you get shared life experiences, such as when the guys got together and we want to start a fire out back and a friend of ours who will remain unnamed, you know, took a gas can and tried to pour it over an already lit fire. You know what? Yeah, it was, it was quite fun. If you weren't there, if you're a dude and you weren't there, this was a couple weeks ago. And just so that you know, he's still alive. He did not die. Okay. <laughs> Share shared life experiences okay so if you didn't share that life experience you missed out because you weren't there i'm just trying to sell our men's gatherings that's all i'm really doing right there um you get shared life experiences right you get a whole list of other benefits too those are just some of the ones off the top for the sake of time so those are some of the benefits um probably more importantly you begin to live in what I would call like biblical community or missional community. You start studying the scriptures together. You start talking about how are we getting on mission in our city and so on and so forth. And how are we serving those that are outside the walls of this church and so on and so forth. Those are very important aspects of living in small community and large community together. Now, it can be difficult. Everybody say amen. Okay, it can be difficult. Why? Because there's humans in the room. Three? There's humans in the room. Um, I've never had anybody try to pour gasoline over my head, but, um, you, you know, that, that would be painful. But, I mean, living in community with other humans can be painful. It can be very difficult. Um, you're not going to like everybody. Let's just get that out, out, out the room already, right? You're not going to like everybody. You, you mean, you've got enough of us in the room here. There's going to be a few of you that are going to be like, I don't like that person for whatever reason. And it, there's going to be somebody who probably doesn't like you either. And you know what? It's okay. <laughs> it, you don't have to like everybody. And you don't have to be liked by everybody either, but you do have to love everybody. Right? And there's a difference. There's a difference. So you got that. That makes it difficult. Um, I think it's also important to mention that uh, living in community, actually be regularly being there, like showing up and being there, having your face and your body in the room and your voice being heard, um, it's a sacrifice. It takes time. You have to etch it out on your calendar. You have to be intentional with that. Uh, and it also takes money, probably, in some regard. It's going to cost you. Whether that be because you're buying food for part of the gatherings, or, um, or on Sundays you're giving a little bit in the offering basket in the back, um, it's going to cost you. And it should be a sacrifice, because if you claim the name of Jesus, what did he give for you? Everything? Right? And he didn't. He did it willingly. Um, that's an aspect of community that can be difficult, right? Now, the problem that I think I often see is that many of us resist community because of the difficulty. But in doing so, please hear me on this. Like, if, if this is meant for you, okay, if this portion of this sermon is, is meant for you, please hear me on this. When you do that, when you reject the blessing that comes from sacrifice, um, what you're doing is you're living in disobedience to, to God, I think. I really think so, based on the biblical pattern. Can, can you imagine what kind of uh, minister Paul would have been if he had resisted community? Um, members and ministers are made in community with other believers. And if you're lacking in that area, then I, I would really encourage you, make it a priority. Get involved or start your own community. You could do that too. Nothing wrong with that. Love to help you with that. Love to start things.
Start your own community, something that's regular with other believers. Second thing uh, we see in the text in terms of how ministers are made is that ministers are made as they proclaim Christ. So if, first of all, they're made in community with other believers, second of all, they're made in the process of proclaiming Jesus, right? I don't think it's a hard pitch for me to say that ministers are made to proclaim Christ, right? You'd agree with that. If a minister doesn't proclaim Christ, he's no minister at all, right? I can't do the Charles Haddon Spurgeon voice like Michael did a few weeks ago. And dude, I busted up laughing so hard. I was like, bro, that's perfect. I don't know if that's what he actually sounded like, but it was great. I can't do that accent. Um, but Spurgeon would say something similar. Like, if you're a minister, you are to proclaim Christ. And if there's no Christ in your sermon, then it's no sermon at all. Go home, right? So I, that's an easy pitch. We're... we're, we're we're called to proclaim Christ, but I also would add this. I think ministers are made as they proclaim Christ. This is what I would refer to as on-the-job training. Um, back when I was a youth pastor, I would take kids to something called a Dare to Share conference. And, um, and when we would go to Dare to Share, that was one of their pitches was like, hey, we need to get you out of your comfortable seats going around the neighborhood, knocking on doors, not being like creepy Jehovah's Witnesses, but just going around, knocking on doors, and actually trying to share Jesus and love on people and pray for them. And man, you, you could just see like infinite amounts of growth in those kids' lives every time we went to that conference because it got them out of their comfort zone. And they were practicing what it meant to share Jesus. And then afterwards, we're pulling aside and we're going, hey, how did that go? How'd you screw up? What about that one guy who cussed you out? What about the one dude who showed up in his bathrobe? Oh my gosh. You know, we're telling stories. And, and, and it brings a whole new aspect to what it means to be following Jesus, right? On the job training. This is what happens, I think, in verses 20 through 22. Luke tells us that Paul immediately, I love that word, immediately. What does immediately mean? Right now, immediately. <laughs> yes. We don't stop very often as we study scriptures and ask questions that might seem really stupid like that. But when you stop and you ask questions like that, it kind of brings a different focus to what God's word is intending to teach us, right? So immediately simply does mean immediately. Right now, not tomorrow, didn't put it off. I don't think Saul was the procrastinating type. But even if he was, in this moment, he did not procrastinate. He says, immediately, what did he do? Proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, he is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc? He made a wreck, made a, made a mess in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name. Has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? And Luke tells us, but Saul, or Paul, increased all the more in strength. Think about that phrase. He increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. The bottom line here for me as I study this is that Paul was being made into a minister, not in this future forecasted version of, hey, someday I'm going to go, go proclaim Jesus. Not in that way. He's being developed as a minister, as a disciple, as a follower of Jesus, as he proclaims Jesus. And in that process, Luke tells us that he increased all the more in strength. Paul grew as a minister as he proclaimed Jesus. Right? Now, I think when we think about stuff like this, I think we often believe that the best way to grow as ministers of the gospel is to do things like go to seminary, read a bunch of books. 
seminary and reading, very good disciplines. You can visit my study in the basement and you can see I'm totally sold out for reading lots of books and reading them over and over and over again. Books are my best friends. They don't talk back and when they do, I can put them down. Okay? <laughs> I love books. I've always been an avid reader. So it's easy for me in that regard. But when we think about this developing as ministers, again, I want to interchange that with developing as a disciple, groaning, um, we think of seminary and reading oftentimes um, in that regard. And you might remember Paul here, Saul, right? He had the best seminary education, right? He studied under a dude named Gamaliel, modern-day uh, Tim Keller, John MacArthur maybe, I don't know. I'm not a big fan of John MacArthur, but Maybe, uh, who, am I, who am I a fan of? Jesus. Piper. I like Piper a little bit. John Piper. Maybe he'd be a little bit like John Piper, right? Um, that's who Gamaliel would have been like. Paul studied under that man. He had the best seminary, and he had the best scrolls or books um, in his collection. Um, so while those things are good, I, I actually think it's actually vital for our growth as disciples, as ministers of the gospel, to actually put our knowledge into action, okay? So think about it this way. If you think about physical fitness, you and I could study the ins and outs of physical health all day long, Right? We could talk about it all day long, uh, but until you actually get into the gym and put all that knowledge into action, um, that's when you're going to begin to get healthier. That's when you're going to begin to grow. Um, just think about biblically, okay? So that, that's an illustration. But the same Bible that instructs us to study, 2 Timothy 2, study to show yourself approved as a worker, which means minister. Um, who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth, right? So study, he says. And he also teaches us too, later on in 2 Timothy, to be ready immediately, right now, in season, out of season, preach the word, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching, right? Well, the same Bible also teaches us in 1 Peter 3 to be prepared, to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you with gentleness and respect. Moral of the story. Um, the ministers don't get made in the back hallways of biblical libraries only. Okay? Ministers get made as they proclaim Christ everywhere they go. And most of the time, I think uh, we as believers, we get stunted in our growth, right? We get left in the hospital. Or we kind of get left maybe as a member of the family and we never enlist in the army as a minister, somebody who has a role on the front line next to another brother or sister, we get stunted there as ministers of the gospel because we happen to do something like obeying fear or we obey insecurity or we obey our busy schedule. We obey those things instead of obeying the God who promises to be with us, to give us his very own spirit when we proclaim him wherever we go. And he's promised to give us all the provision necessary to follow him as a soldier in his army. Instead of obeying the God who promises those things, we wind up obeying those other things. And that's called sin, right? That's to miss the mark. Trusting God's promises of provision in this regard, in any regard, really, this is a blanket principle. Trusting God's promises of provision will always produce growth in your life. Always. Whereas... If you obey fear, or you obey insecurity, or you obey 
busyness, um, that will always produce what? Immaturity, stunted growth. Uh, it's pretty black and white. Um, can you imagine, once again, come back to the Apostle Paul, right? He's now Saul right now. Um, can you imagine if the Apostle Paul had resisted the opportunity to proclaim Christ immediately? He said, nah, these people knew that I was going to come and kill them. They want to back off and go try to find an easier crowd to preach to. Imagine what would have happened. What kind of believer or minister would Paul have been if he had obeyed fear? Again, same man who later on, I believe in Romans, says, have not been given over to a spirit of slavery, which is called fear. But I've been given over to a spirit of sonship, whereby I, as a son of God, can approach the throne of grace, cry out, Daddy, Daddy, in complete dependence upon the Father who saved him. Ministers get made as they proclaim Christ. Number three, and I better start rolling because I'm way out of time. Ministers were definitely not made to follow the clock very well. This one wasn't. I'm glad you all give me such latitude and grace. Ministers are made through persecution. That's number three. Ministers are made through persecution. That's the third thing I notice. Luke tells us in verses 23 through 25, basically that when many days had passed, the, the Jews plotted to kill Paul, but their plot became known to him. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night, let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. I just That, that whole scene just fascinates me. I'd be hard-pressed to let anybody put me in a basket and lower me over a wall to escape some bad guys. I'm sure you probably know that about me. <laughs> um, I, you know, the reality is most of us, and, and in many regards, I do this too, okay? We spend our lives working to preserve the quality of our life, right? Or increase the quality of our living somehow. We do that while trying to avoid life-threatening situations, most of us. And in many regards, right, that's, that's, there's some wisdom there, isn't there? Um, not to live recklessly. But throughout the scripture, the pattern of making someone into a minister of the gospel, the pattern of growing disciples of Jesus, who are ministers of the gospel, um, always includes some kind of danger and persecution. Jesus actually promised that if you're going to follow him, this is what you're going to get. This is what you have to look forward to. It's not rainbows and unicorns. It's not sunshine and daisies. Always. You know, there's moments that carry you through the valleys. Hey, think about it this way, too. Uh, again, back to the analogy of being in an infantry in a military. I mean, this same Saul, Apostle Paul, wrote later in Ephesians 6 that we wage war. We have a war being waged against us. We are on a front line. Um, spiritual forces of darkness. Our job is to proclaim Christ crucified, risen, and returning on that front line. And in this case with the Apostle Paul, most scholars in this moment, so this is, this. I'm going to try to move through this quick, but if you look at verse 23, it says, when many days had passed. It doesn't legitimately tell us how many days were there. Correct? Agreed? Um, but you do start to ask the question, how many days were many days? Because my idea of many days and your idea of many days are a little bit different. If you were to look at Galatians chapter 1, verses 15 through 18, we're not going to go there, but you might mark it down and take a look at it. You'll see how the Apostle Paul then tells this story that we're reading. And when he tells this story, it appears as though 
as soon as he got saved, he proclaimed the gospel in the streets of Damascus. And then for roughly three years or so, he withdrew to the desert in, uh, in, in Arabia. Okay? Uh, in that place, most scholars believe that he was spending time under the shadow of Mount Sinai. There's lots of biblical history that I'd love to get into right here. But just so that you know, Mount Sinai was the same place where Moses was made into a minister as well. Isn't that fascinating? Fascinated me. It wasn't like uh, Saul was completely out of the limelight. I believe he was still doing ministry in that space. But that's where he developed for the next three years in that for many days period. Now, as you think about that, there is something to a principle where God, when God makes us into ministers um, and we're going to experience persecution and suffering, it would be good for us to spend time alone with Jesus, spend time alone with God. You'll not be able to face pain and suffering without having that reservoir filled when you're spending time with Jesus. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move on to point number four. And I want to say this as we move there. I don't know what kind of suffering you may be looking at in your life in terms of the gospel, in terms of your stand for Jesus, or in terms of you sharing the gospel with others. I'm not sure what you may be facing there, but I can tell you this. If you, res if you resist facing that and stepping into that persecution, it will stunt your growth. Okay? So I just encourage you, step into that and trust that when God says, I'll give you my spirit so that you might have the strength to proclaim my name, trust that he'll do what he says he'll do. Always comes through. Fourth and final thing here uh, is that I believe ministers are made through commendation. Now, that's a big word. Um, the big idea is this. In the final verses of our text, verses 26 through 30, Luke tells us that Paul makes his way to Jerusalem, right? A few years later, he goes there to hook up with the disciples. The disciples are afraid of him. Barnabas, right? Remember Barnabas? He's the encourager from Acts 4. Um, he goes and he meets with Paul, and then he commends Paul to the rest of the church in Jerusalem, which then enables Paul to continue preaching Jesus boldly throughout the city, right? And what happens because of that? Well, he eventually gets some more enemies who want to kill him, namely among the Hellenistic group. And as a side to that, I would say there could be a connection between that and the fact that Saul was standing there holding the clothes of the men who killed Stephen, who was a Hellenistic Jew. And, and so there could be a connection there. It would make a lot of sense to me. And so this causes a whole uproar going on, right? And the disciples don't want to receive Paul. They're afraid of him still. And Barnabas goes and he commends him to the rest of the disciples. This is super, super important for us in the church when it comes to being developed as disciples, as ministers of the gospel, right? Again, no such thing as Lone Ranger Christianity. What you know is not as important as being known. That's a really important principle. What you know is not as important as being known. And here's the thing. You cannot be known if you are not pursuing relationships in community with other believers. It's all over this text, right? It's saturated with that principle all over the place. Again, I want you to think one last moment on this. How intentional and risky it was, not just for the Apostle Paul, right? To head to Jerusalem, to, to pursue relationship with the disciples there. So it was definitely risky for him to do so. I want you to think about how risky and intentional it was for Barnabas to pursue relationship with Paul. And the question becomes, who's your Paul and who's your Barnabas? 
if you don't have a Barnabas and you don't have a Paul, you're not going to grow. You might do some looking. Maybe God's placed that Barnabas in your life. Somebody's going to come alongside of you and encourage you and help you grow, commend you to others, help pave the way so that you might have relationships with others in community and so that your, so that your ministry might expand, right? Um, but then you probably also need to be a Paul, somebody. That's the challenge there. Commendation is something that flows out of friendship. And it's something that's absolutely vital to your growth, not only as a believer, but also as a minister of the gospel. Agreed? All right, so in conclusion, I'll make this brief. We have learned this. Here's God's pathway, right, for made men, not in the mob, (laughs) for making people into ministers. And it includes things like radical commitment to biblical community, proclaiming Christ every chance you get, experiencing persecution and suffering, having the commendation of other believers around you, When God chooses to make a minister of the gospel, he does it through a pattern of what we would call on-the-job training. And in that development plan, you have to show up, you have to punch the time card. If you ain't punching the time card, you're not going to get the results. Um, You will always be in the hospital as a patient. You will not have moved to the family level. You will not have moved to the soldier level. And what happens in the midst of this plan is that as people, because there, there's a sense of our own will in this at this point, right? Like we have to make those decisions. And God blesses obedience to some, to some extent, right? And so as we make those decisions to follow God in obedience in these ways, what does God do? The result of all of this is that God advances his kingdom to the ends of the earth. It's actually what I would call like a kingdom advancing plan. And that plan to advance his kingdom is actually the only reason that God makes ministers out of sinners in the first place. It's to advance his own name, his own glory to the ends of the earth, his own dominion, you might say. The results of well-made ministers, you can see it in the final verse of the text, verse 31. What does it tell us? The church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it says what? It multiplied. Quite literally, the church advanced. And it multiplied because God made a minister out of a terrorist. Right? It's a wild story. And I would say that if the church today anywhere suffers any kind of inadequate growth, it's typically because not enough believers heed that call to be ministers to join the army. Um, and I don't know what, what part of the sermon is you're listening to this today. I don't know what part is intended for you. I don't know what part you are to listen to and to obey. But I do know this. God has a plan for you. If you're here, you don't know him yet. You ain't too far gone. Um, God can save Paul. He can save you, right? You ain't too far gone for him to save. You're not too far gone for him to enlist in his army. As my friend always says, when you walked in this morning, you didn't go poof and smoke. So God still got his hand on your life, right? And Paul's story really is proof of this. If you are a believer and you've been benched for some reason in your mind, maybe it's time for you to get off that bench, pick up your cross, um, enter God's ministerial training program. Talk to me. Talk to any of our other leaders here about ways you can take steps forward. Love to help you with that, right?
Most of all, at the end of the day, I want you to be encouraged in this. When you look at the story of the Apostle Paul, and you think about our own stories, there's one story that it's all meant to point to, and it's the story of Jesus, right? When it comes to Jesus, Jesus never went into a hospital to receive a new heart. He went into the hospital to give you and I brand new hearts. He left a perfect place called heaven, very comfortable place. He came here to a sin-soaked earth. Um, well, you could set up hospitals for all of us called churches. It's so crazy that churches also double not only as hospitals, but also as homes for families, and also as training and equipping centers for soldiers. And uh, Jesus knew that when he came. He lived all that out in front of us. I mean, if there was anybody who was the greatest soldier in God's army, it would have been Jesus, right? Carrying a cross on behalf of enemies, not just going to battle against enemies. That's the picture of Jesus' love. If you've been impacted by the story of the gospel, the story of Jesus, I would encourage you. Spend some time with Jesus over in our closing songs here. Ask Jesus, by the power of his spirit, to show you what step is next. Last thing I would want is to be stagnant. Right? So just ask Jesus what step is next. Follow his lead. Don't try to eat the entire elephant in one bite, okay? There's a big elephant inside that sermon. I would hope that the Holy Spirit would just show you one little bite that you need to take right now, because if you try to eat an elephant in entire one bite, you will die. Okay. That's, that's a lot of elephant to eat. So just ask the Holy Spirit, what step is next? What bite should I take first? Ask him for the strength. Start moving forward. Growth, last thing. Growth is slow, all right? I'm uh, 23, 23 years into following Jesus, and I, if I could, like, if I was able to bear my entire soul of all the dark, dirty sins I still struggle with, you guys would be horrified. I wouldn't want you to have to deal with that. <laughs> um, so I'm thankful for the gracious God we serve. Uh, yeah, love you guys a bunch. Would you stand with me? Father, thank you. Thank you for our time together in your word. Pray, God, that you would help us to continue to grow as believers, as followers. Help us to continue to uh, connect with your love for us and the work that you did at the cross for us, the fact that you left that tomb empty. Give us hope. We are reminded of eternity, the promise that we have in heaven. And pray, Father, in these closing moments that you would come and speak to us by the power of your Spirit. But help us to help us to see you in all your beauty and all your glory. Help us to be encouraged and strengthened. But help us also have a desire to grow and to move forward in obedience to you. God, we love you. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, Amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.